Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast number 131. And it's the last one in April, which means in the UK there's a holiday just around the corner, as well as some elections. As well as the holiday on Monday, there's no school on Thursday either, just to make things even more irregular. I'm definitely looking forward to not having half a dozen political messages shoved through the door every morning, and I expect the postman's looking forward to that as well. To make it confusing, there are 11 parties looking for our votes this time in Scotland, so that's a lot of unnecessary paper. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we're back to four seasons in a week this week, but plenty of walking, some gardening, and a trip to the stores, so a really exciting few days. I wonder when we're finally able to go to events again, whether we'll be able to handle the excitement. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people having issues with being in crowds again. Nothing we really have to worry about here in a tiny village, but some of those big food shows that will be coming up in the fall, hopefully, are incredibly crowded, as well as the public transport to get to them, which is why I generally walk. I guess we'll also have to remember to pack several masks. I seem to have misplaced two already, probably in pockets somewhere on jackets or hoodies. It used to be you'd occasionally find money in the pocket of a jacket you'd not worn for a while, but now it's going to be masks. Maybe someone needs to invent a hat that has a mask in it or one that's attached to a hat, but then I'd forget the hat as well. Not much else to report this week other than all the stores in Scotland are now reopened, one more step toward semi-normality, and more cold, wet weather, so even more normality. It's a three-interview podcast this time with three people. We have conversations with John King, COO of Milk Movement, Evandro Oliveira de Souza, Business Lead Cheese at DSM Food Specialties, and Matt Baldock, Business Development Manager for Food Packaging at Sealed Air. And of course, we have our weekly update on the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Which brings us to this week's news that you may have missed. We had a special edition on reducing carbon footprints, In the U.S., Strauss Family Creamery and BMW Group are working together on fuel for vehicles, and Friesland Campina launched its Africa Nutrition Program. Univar Solutions and Novozymes have expanded their Latin America distribution agreement, a pilot milk cooler bag program launched in California schools, and Dow and Shiny Meadow Dairy are making roads from plastic milk bottles in China. Ornua published its financials, which saw the company operating profit up by 69%, and the first commercial launch took place for the SIG paper U-Straw for aseptic cartons. CVC Capital Partners has taken a majority interest in a Greek dairy brand company, and in Ireland, a Cork ice cream company won a 1.4 million euro Tesco-owned label contract. And that doesn't mean that they make ice cream from Corks, They're just based in Cork in Ireland. There was a surprising stat this week in that milk and cream exports from the UK to the EU dropped by 96% in February compared to the same time last year, and most of it has been attributed to Brexit and not to the pandemic. 
Givaudin and Bula have opened their Protein Innovation Center in Singapore, and you can read all of these, as well as the ones I sneakily missed out in an attempt to get you to go to DairyReporter.com. And the ones that I left out had nothing whatsoever to do with difficult pronunciations. So this week we're going to kick things off with DSM Food Specialties in the Netherlands. In 2019, they acquired the company CSK. So we chatted with Evandro Oliveira de Souza, business lead cheese at DSM, about the integration of CSK into the company, as well as some of the solutions that bringing both companies together has brought about. So how has the integration of CSK enabled DSM to better support cheesemakers' needs? Well, most and foremost, I have to say people, right? So the integration of both businesses somehow has created a unique team for us in the in the field of cheese experts in uh, all sorts of disciplines. So we can talk about R&D, application, even manufacturing, sales, and so forth. So also on top of that, I would say the new integrated portfolio of solutions uh, somehow allowed us to be an even stronger partner for customers in all regions. So then it can be Europe, Middle East Asia, Latin America, North America, you name it. But particularly in Europe, when you talk about portfolio, it enables sustainable and efficient production. You know, that's important for cheesemakers, as well as speed to market. And uh, when you talk about the benefits of the portfolio and uh, more specifically about the cultures, it's also about cultures and, uh, let's say, also enzymes. It's also about the fantastic taste and texture that we can offer as a differentiation. When um, I think it's also worth to mention that uh, we have expanded our global manufacturing network with a very high-tech fermentation facility in Novarden. We have incorporated a state-of-the-art dairy application center in Wageningen. So, uh, by the way, you might know Leeuwarden and Wageningen, they are both in the Netherlands. And this alongside DSM's biotech center that we call Rosalind Franklin Biotech Center, that is also in Delft in the Netherlands. So that all together will allow us to, to further strengthen our R&D capabilities and unlock, I would say, very unique innovation potential. But also, if you can also be very tangible about it and how this is all connected to support our customers to what I normally say is to valorize their cheese to the highest level. So I can say that, for instance, with the Dutch heritage that both companies have, so DSM now can offer and help customers to develop a way to produce tasteful Gouda, which is a Dutch cheese, but it's produced all over the world, all over different countries in continental Europe. So we can uh, we can do that. We can help customers to produce that with an excellent texture. And do you have facilities in countries other than the Netherlands? Yeah, we do. We do have facilities in Australia, in the Netherlands, in France, in the United States. So uh, all related to, to cheese. But if you talk about dairy, so then uh, we have some, some other sites. But uh, when you talk about cheese, those are the main sites for us. And now that the integration with CSK has been completed, what are the objectives now in the cheese industry as you move forward? Yeah, I would say what we aim to do is to continually develop uh, the product range that we have and also expand it, the capabilities to meet the requirements of our customers but also to look at the consumer trends. So then uh, in terms of uh, the objectives, we also want to expand the end-to-end on-site and off-site, of course, COVID-proof support to our customers. I also say that we want to explore new ways to leverage our 
but I highlight elevated R&D and innovation power to offer added value to our customers. Again, as I said before, so taste differentiation is big time an option for companies of all sizes. It remains a priority for DSM now and also in the future. And to understand the needs uh, to produce cheese in a sustainable way, in an efficient way, that's important for cheese production process. And uh, we are now able to boost this capability further with the global network that we discussed before. We are absolutely convinced that DSM is the best partner of choice to produce, for instance, very efficient pizza, cheese in any parts of the world. So it's pretty much local to local, right? So then uh, we can help customers to make a very efficient pizza cheese, tasteful gold cheddar in the UK, in the US, or in Australia, New Zealand, Thwarog in Eastern Europe, cottage, as an example, in Israel. So we can certainly help customers to make uh, those cheeses in a reliable, efficient, sustainable way. Has your offering in the cheese space changed as a result of the integration? Yeah, look, combining cheese expertise, the portfolio and the experience that you have, as I, as I mentioned before, uh, we have a Dutch heritage. It has a significant benefit for both customers and the dairy industry, especially now that you are operating as one single company. That being said, by being already a leader in fermentation, the acquisition of CSK also enabled us the, as the SM to become a leader in taste differentiation. Maybe we can also talk about the flavor wheel concept. So that's quite unique uh, in the market. So customers, they are now able to leverage from the SM's expertise, experience, the heritage as a solution provider to uh, innovative and get new and leading products to market quickly. So that's uh, all about speed to market. And uh, we, can da- we can do that from start to finish. As cheesemakers can, for instance, benefit from our flavor wheel. So uh, if we look at the previous agent cultures portfolio that was part of dsm's portfolio and then the the flavor wheel concept and all products behind it at csk we can make very unique distinguished tailor-made taste profile for all types of cheeses and all kind of uh, customers in terms of scale we have also expanded the product portfolio with the saskashtar cultures also i think it's good to mention that when we're talking about more kind of a fresh cheeses. We also incorporated the dairy-safe cultures, and that also enabled us to support and tap into the growing interest in the bioprotection. So we know that this market is amongst all cultures, maybe the one that will grow the most until 2025 or 2030. So it's going to be massive in the future. So then uh, dairy-safe, it's uh, definitely a tool for us and for our customers to get there. And so what can the cheese industry around the world expect from DSM in the future? Yeah, so we understand that it's more important than ever for cheesemakers all over the world to have an end-to-end partner that will help them to innovate. The name of the game here is innovation, differentiation, having a compelling cheese production, reliable, and uh, making sure that customers and consumers will taste the great cheese. So what we're going to do is to continue to bring exciting new dairy creations to the table. Uh, If you look at the portfolio that we have today with the right expertise, the experience, the Dutch heritage, the portfolio, uh, DSM is a purpose-led company. So we are performance-driven and we are a science-based company. So then our purpose is to create brighter lives for all. And in the cheese industry, there will be a big benefit for it today and tomorrow. So certainly beneficial for your customers when it comes to the integration of CSK into DSM. And also if you look at how those portfolios, how they complement each other. So then, uh, like uh, if you look at maybe one last example to you, 
Uh, so if you look at the capabilities, the microbial protection. So uh, that has been boosted by the addition of a product that we call Sesca Coat. That's for uh, cheese coating. So uh, we also talk about all the animal lipases, the animal rennets, the, the microbials. If you look from a portfolio perspective, yeah, so then uh, definitely DSM is the best in class to serve our customers, globally speaking. Next, we go to Canada for a company in the eastern part of the country, Milk Movement, which has developed cloud-based dairy supply chain software and recently announced the closure of a $3.2 million funding round. To tell us about the software and the funding is the company's COO, John King. If you could just give me a bit of background on the origins of the company and what you do and why you started this, all those good things, that'd be great. Absolutely. So I'm John King, co-founder and COO here at Milk Movement. They say once you get in the dairy business, you never get out. And that was definitely true for me. I worked in a variety of different levels of the dairy supply chain, transporter, cooperative, processor, retailer, pretty much everywhere along the supply chain with the exception of the farm itself. And one thing I found incredibly frustrating at each of my stops was that each organization was holding its own data in a silo and only sharing with the rest of the supply chain, either A, when something went wrong, or B, when it came time for pay. And by doing this, we take 5, 10, 15 days when any of those occasions arose to even agree on a problem before we started working on a solution. So while I was working at the dairy cooperative, and in Canada, we have dairy cooperatives that are geographically locked for every single province in the country. And while I was working there, I was a manager of transportation, logistics, and producer pay. And I found that the gap was really substantial and it was really frustrating and challenging for me to get the information I needed to effectively do my job and get the best milk to market in the most effective way possible. So while I was working there, I actually started building a just simple Google Drive based tool where I would allow for my information to come in, I would feed it in, it would then section out into individual Google Drives for every farm on the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And then I went out and gave every single one of my producers the login for their accounts. And that worked pretty well. For about a year after that, that job became less of a challenge. And I went out and started a drone company called Drone NL and did some really exciting work there. But a year later, my old boss from the cooperative came back to me and said, hey, the Google Drive works well, but now that you've got some technology experience, I think there's an opportunity here to build beyond just the initial drive system and build an actual cloud-based system where we could manage a lot of this information. So I took a look at what was happening across Canada and then around the world and saw there really was an opportunity for a cloud-based system to provide real-time actionable intelligence across the very supply chain. And that's when Milk Movement was born. What were you addressing when you started with the Milk Movement software? What what does it actually address? The first thing that we provide is digitization across the supply chain. So essentially what that means is we're getting all the data together, we're providing that data in real time, and we're providing it to multiple parties all across the supply chain so they can collaborate in order to solve problems. And what that typically looks like is through our vast notification systems in the background for really any of hundreds of triggers along the supply chain, 
we can provide notifications, phone call, email, text message to the proper uh, portions of the supply chain to get those issues solved. And our goal is to get any supply chain issue solved in four minutes or less. And that's down from what is typically 20 to 40 days as an industry average. Ultimately, with all that information digitized and understood in real time, we aim to provide the cooperative processors, transporters, and producers with the tools to complete the entire payment process at month end in 40 minutes or less, which lets them quickly, easily understand where the different uh, economic drivers have happened and convert those pay files through uh, with just a click of a couple of buttons. The second half of what Milk Movement provides comes after the digitization approach. And what that is, is the optimization. So we've built a strategic cloud infrastructure that says where everything is, how it's moving, and then tracking it really deeply on a minute by minute or second by second basis. And beyond that tracking and the digitization, we are then, after a client is on the system for about six months, able to provide AI-based recommendations on how they can improve their supply chain going forward. So that might be things like, we noticed that your average truck on Route 36 is driving 246 kilometers, and we're able to reduce that to 222 by doing XYZ approaches or by moving the processing facility that we're dropping off to on this run on Wednesdays, and all of those kind of tools that really were unattainable before for dispatchers who were handling many, many routes across many different factories and many farms on a week-by-week, day-by-day, minute-by-minute basis, our system's able to do because it's grabbing, uh, analyzing, and predicting that data on a go-forward basis. And so who would benefit from this? Is it right across the supply chain? Yeah, there's different benefits as you go into each level. So at the farm level, as an example, we provide predictions in terms of what the milk quality coming off the farm will be, what the uh, milk production is going to be, and then what the economic factors are going to be for that farm in that current month or year to date. As we move on to the transportation and hauling side, we provide a variety of transportation logistics tools that can say whether we're reducing driver time, reducing mileage, increasing efficiency on loads, a whole suite of tools for those transportation haulers. Then at the processing facility, we're able to do real deep analysis on shrinks, milk quality arriving at the plant, and a variety of other factors that help our processors make sure they're getting the right inputs so they can ensure that they're getting the best outputs for whatever the product is that they're making. And then finally, at the cooperative level, it's kind of, as we see it, the the overarching layer on top. All of those benefits roll up to be quite helpful. And we also have that real-time industry-wide view that can help that cooperative best understand where their strategic priorities are going to be in the next period and know that their supply chain is picking along with next to no problems as as they're managing it uh, really easily just from one smartphone. Right. In the uh, press release that came out, it mentioned the dairy supply chain being antiquated. What were the issues and how does what you do fix all of that? Yeah, so the dairy supply chain being antiquated is certainly that key driver that I was recognizing in my time with every single one of those uh, supply chain partners where I had worked. Typically what we'll find in dairy is a lot of pen and paper, 
a lot of old database structures, systems. We've got processing facilities that are still running predominantly their entire business before milk movement on fax machines and moving data around that way. It's at every single level, it's siloed data that is in an old structure, locked down, and is only updated on that periodic basis, typically bi-monthly. And we've got, in the average dairy supply chain, when we start, we're looking at three to six of those kind of antiquated systems that none of them can talk to one another. None of them know how to move data from one piece to the next. And most times, those systems are also either A, a transportation logistics system that was ported from delivery or shipping or a manufacturing system that might have been pulled over from a particular sort of bottling distribution type system. Really off the shelf tools that are then pigeonholed to work for dairy, but don't provide that real robust understanding of what the dairy space itself needs. The dairy is really quite unique in the fact that there's multiple different factors going on beneath the layers that even small things can trip up a system quite substantially. So understanding deeply what the space needs, we believe is the reinvigoration that's needed. So it was one of the problems, the fact that there was no uniformity and that's what you're trying to achieve? That's definitely a major problem, yes. The understanding and mapping out of the data structure within the space is a very, very big issue. I think it's a deeper point as we start to dive in. What we'll find is there's been a lot of really great work over the last two decades to try and push new technology in the space, but that great work has been done for the most part in a vacuum. So even as different pieces of the supply chain do try and improve, as they're not having a holistic approach across that supply chain and working with their partners, you do run into a variety of factors where verbiage might change from one to the next, data points change, unique codes change, and it just creates a big jumble of information that can't be easily networked together. So Jim, I would say yes to your point that it's it's certainly a baseline uniformity problem and understanding that and getting our partners to work together for real-time outcomes and improvement along the supply chain is a core fundamental in our business. Now, in, in pretty much every business in the world, there's an element of we've always done it this way. How easy is it to get people to try this and to work with it? Yeah, that is a really good point and a good question. So it was damn hard at the beginning. Really, really hard. We were fortunate to have our first client before we wrote our first line of code. So we had our initial client, Dairy Farmers in Newfoundland and Labrador, who understood the problems and understood the value of change, which is great. So we were able to do that. And that, that was fantastic. We did have a large portion of prove it and keep proving it to get our next dairy board in Canada, which is Dairy Farmers Prince Edward Island. Uh, then we went south of the border to the US and we actually just started in Australia as well. So it's starting to get there as traction, but the innovators in the space are the ones that are coming online right now for sure. 
Jim, we do anticipate the early majority coming up through 2022 as we get started. But right now, it's those that understand the value of change and, and are willing to go ahead and make that investment and join the process who are coming online with most of the business today. Right. And once they are using the software, are they finding it easy and are they liking it once they try it? Yeah. So one thing that we did very early on and we have as a hyper focus for us as a company is to really deeply understand who's using our systems at each level of the supply chain and why they're using the systems. And we did that first. I spent eight months riding around on dairy trucks when we launched the initial driver application. I would go on the runs, understand where drivers were doing different pieces of their job, find out where were the right places to put technology and equally where not to try and put our systems as well. Uh, that was a really big piece. We did producer meetings. Uh, we did cooperative meetings, processor meetings, everywhere along the supply chain. We went deep to understand what we were building, why we were building it, and how we could build it in a way that would actually be useful for our clients. And then from there, we kept building that momentum onwards. And we are very, very quick to monitor and make changes on the system based on what the data tells us. We're in a strong position right now. And because of our business model, which is that we onboard at the cooperative level and get large groups of farms online at once, we're able to get large amounts of data for each of those groups quite quickly, understand those groups' needs based on what the data tells us, and then make adjustments based on that. So no matter what, Milk Movement is always trying to build in a way that's really, really intuitive, helpful, and valuable to its users, rather than just stuff that we from a tech side think looks cool and is cool. And I think that's been a key part to our success. And to this point, those that have come on the system of course, there's a change period, and typically an onboarding is anywhere from three to six months. Uh, but as we get through those first two, three months, they really start to pick up steam, understand the value that they're getting, and even provide suggestions on how the system can improve themselves really quite quickly after that. So we found good good pickup quite quickly with our clients. And as far as different versions, are you constantly upgrading it and, and tweaking it from what you discover from the users as well? Yeah, good question. So because we are fully cloud-based, we are able to provide updates. We're updating the system almost every 48 hours, providing new valuable tools for our clients. So yes, we're absolutely able to provide the benefits and they come in a variety of different ways. They can be system-wide benefits that everybody's getting and we're pulling everyone up together and we're improving. And they can also be individual cooperative-wide benefits. So for a specific client, changes here or there based on how their producers might be doing something different. And we found a pretty good method of slicing and dicing the difference between what our system-wide and then what our customizations need for specific clients. And our producer groups uh, really seem to appreciate that, understand that, and take advantage of those new tools really quite quickly as well as they're available, which is great to see. And is this something that applies globally or is it just um, North America? We're, we're in Canada and the United States. Uh, we just started in the Australian market. We're really, really excited about that. We do have our eyes set on Europe for 2022. 
And we actually were fortunate enough to just complete an accelerator with the Canadian government about exporting to Mexico as a market as well. So there's many different opportunities globally. And one thing, Jim, that we're actually working on as we continue to grow and a big part of why we're doing this round is we're predicting single supply chains and how they're going to interact today. Next, our journey is to predict how those supply chains act with the others in the region, then operating across entire countries. And then finally, our goal is to optimize and provide solutions for the most effective management of dairy supply chains all around the world. Obviously, uh, the main point of the press release that came out was that you've just got some new investment. What is that going to allow you to do in the short term and the long term? Yeah, so we're really excited about completing our seed round. We think that equally to the capital in the round, our group of investors is one that is incredibly powerful. So we've linked through strategic money. We've linked through transportation logistics venture from Dynamo Ventures, who are one of the leaders in transportation logistics VC uh, around the world. We've got Better Food Ventures, who are deeply involved in ag tech. So, so we've got a wide variety of investors who fit really, really well within our mission. And what we're doing within this round is providing a significant amount of optimization around the digitization of our data. So it's about building out those data sets to provide deeper analytics predictions. Our goal is on the transport side to help reduce the transportation budgets for our clients by as much as 10%, which in a bigger cooperative can, can lead up to $5 million a year in savings. So those are the key elements that we're working on in terms of optimizations of the data with our new investor partners and our new capital as well. And then as we go and we lead towards our Series A with this new financing, we are also working on predictions of milk quality on our farm. And we've got some really cool partnerships coming up that are going to help us do that to a very accurate level. And what we're really thinking about is if we can very deeply understand not only the quantity of milk that's coming off each of our farms as a prediction, but the quality of that milk as well, we can really understand and effectively plan that supply chain to get the right milk to the right plant at the right time, every time, so that they're able to get that perfect final product to the end consumer and well plan, execute, and monitor their supply chain. So even if there's big fluctuations in demand or big changes anywhere along the supply chain, whether that be to global pandemics, massive power outages, really whatever hits, our goal is to have milk movement ready and able to help support with real-time data information and predictions and planning for those supply chains. And I guess you already mentioned the fact that there would be a savings in terms of transportation, but it would probably also be good for environmental footprint as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a really great point. It's a big one in our space. We've also had Sustainable Development Technologies Canada, SDTC, who have been a big supporter of us as well in building green technology. So yeah, along with that dollar value on that transportation savings, we've got significant GHG savings that are going along. And the prediction on farms as well can really help us understand what the inputs are on the farm what the outputs are coming out 
and provide a lot of those greenhouse gas emission savings as well at the farm gate level. And then finally, over on the processor side, we're also talking about really planning and executing the inputs and outputs there so that we're able to understand where we'll have byproducts, what the quality of those byproducts will be more accurately, and then ultimately what other opportunities there are to make final products from those uh, different byproducts at the processing level. So there's lots of good savings there as well. And that's something that we're really excited about. And now it's to an interview in the UK for the global company Sealed Air, which I learned was the company that invented bubble wrap, which is something that I tend to stand on at two in the morning and wake up the entire household and scare myself in the process. So hopefully you learn a few things from this conversation with Matt Baldock, Business Development Manager for Food Packaging at Sealed Air, when we talk about sustainability and the new Cryovac brand designed for recycling standard presentation shrink bag. All right, so to get things started, I wonder if you could give me a little bit of background on Sealed Air? Yeah, sure thing. Bit of a history lesson, I suppose, to start with. Um, Sealed Air is a name that I think most people globally would recognize in some way, shape or form. Sealed Air Company was founded in, in 1960 in the States, two engineers. And actually, their idea was to do with wallpaper and, and trying to find um, a wall covering that was different to the rest. That project failed. And this product that they had and thought would work for walls was essentially two plastic sheets laminated to one another. But they kept finding air bubbles in it. That ended up becoming bubble wrap, which we know and love today, or air cap in the UK. And that packaging material was obviously born from a mistake. So that was pretty cool. Moving forward in time to 1998, Sealed Air as a business purchased the Cryovac business, which the food care division of the company uh, producing primary packaging for uh, various proteins and, and non-proteins across the food sector, which in turn was formed in 1941. So there's a lot of history. The Cryovac history is as interesting as the sealed air history. So 1941, the initial products that Cryovac were making were for food parcels for the guys in World War II on the front line so there's a lot of really interesting history the deeper you go but today we've moved on and we're focused on packaging solutions that are helping customers achieve sustainability goals you know, being an absolute hot topic at the moment and facing you know, the biggest societal environmental challenges which we see as well so we are active now in over 117 countries with uh, 106 manufacturing sites so a global presence but hopefully with a local feel as well what products do you have that are relevant for dairy and dairy alternatives? From a food care perspective, again, we'll focus on that. We have hundreds of products relevant to the dairy space and the dairy alternative space, which I'm delighted you mentioned for reasons um, forthcoming. Two key products, I think, that are really relevant now in the dairy space are firstly something we call RBDF, rather snappily titled. Essentially, it's a flow wrap film, which is then shrunk post pack. It's probably, and I know the business doesn't say this, so this is my personal opinion, but it's something that I think is indisputable. It's probably the most sustainable material on the planet right now in terms of relationship with the waste hierarchy. So reduce, reuse, recycle being the three key topics. With this BDF film, you're reducing plastic weight. It's down at 21 microns. Reuse, there's 30% certified circular resin or PCR in common parlance included in it. And then recyclability, we've not only got products which achieve the RIC4 identifier, but also 
we're working on some actual OPRL accredited recyclable materials too. So all of that kind of really works together for the here and now and what the markets are after. And the other really interesting product that we have at the moment, again, relevant to dairy, and this is a long snappy title, the Cryovac Designed for Recycling Standard Presentation Shrink Bag and Shrinkable Roll Stock. In short, it's a shrink bag, vacuum pools, obviously creating that most inert of environments inside to help extend shelf life, but it comes being designed for recyclability, i.e. in this case, having the RIC4 accreditation compatible with the polyethylene stream. And it's actually been assessed and achieved via the Institute Cyclos HTP in Germany being 100% recyclable through those tests. Clearly, there is beyond that discrepancy between those tests and what the OPRL would accept in the UK. But further afield, it certainly would go through that process A-OK. So those two products really are what um, is driving our agenda at the moment. That one with the snappy title that's new, the Cryovac design for recycling. What's special about that? We believe and certainly been part of uh, many of our media pitches and press releases. It is the world's first um, RIC4 coded heat sealable food packaging material in this area in, in terms of shrink bags. And again, we do play on this recyclability test by Cyclos, which obviously proves it's 100% there. So that's a really good starting point. Again, we look further and look at the enhanced efficiencies and environmental performance in terms of down gauge, trying to take plastic out. Um, now, plastic may be considered the enemy in the wider public, and obviously reducing that is something we we need to do to obviously cater to that both pressure and obviously sustainability need. But plastic is in reality not an enemy, it's actually a friend and you know, we do consider our materials essential because they protect the food inside the pack of course and also offer other benefits in terms of looking at the whole sustainability chain within a business, obviously reducing weight, reducing lorries on road, reducing carbon emissions and again carbon is something that really needs to be part of these conversations now. It achieves all of that too so that's kind of the brief benefits of this bag but it's something we're really proud of developing definitely and how does it work so essentially the bag itself kind of looking at larger cheese blocks or cheese alternative blocks and i still haven't got back on the dairy alternatives but i will revisit that you're filling the bag so it could be manual or automatic depending on the equipment you have that gets sealed and vacuum sealed so again, we're pulling all of the air out of the pack to create inertia. And then it shrunk afterwards. So it shrinks around the product. But that's really important because it obviously it enhances that hermeticity of pack. But also in terms of envisaging it and the aesthetic, you actually don't see waste plastic flapping around. That's really important. Again, if it's for, for use in retail, for example, people have become very sensitive to seeing excess plastic on packs. And that extra material does not sit well with the consumer. So shrinking is a technology that's been around forever, but really we see it rising to increased prominence now because you're not then met on shelf with a sea of plastic. And returning to the dairy alternative, jumping to our other material, which is the RBDF, that contains no animal derivatives. And there has been a program going on where those animal derivatives have been removed from certain products to fit in line with the uh, ethical demands of the vegan market of, of whom we cannot you know, ignore. Um, as they continue with a really strong sustainability approach. So again, we do have materials and continue to grow that base of materials for those guys too, which is fantastic and um, another challenge for our industry. 
what advantages do all of those give to producers? I guess there's less waste and it's more consumer friendly. It's really important. We need to reduce all kinds of waste. Be it food waste it should be the ultimate priority because you know, if you look at UN figures, you've got 800 million plus in, in poverty globally. It's, it's the worst the world's ever seen. So food waste is something we need to reduce. And that's a massive part of what we do. And again, why we do consider a lot of our packaging to be essential food packaging. Beyond that, yes, we want to reduce plastic content um, and reduce plastic waste too. So a lot of our technologies, again, we're looking to optimise the amount of plastic within a product um, and we want to keep it as minimal as possible. So those two things are really important. The the byproducts of, of this and all of this reduction going on is reducing carbon footprint too. And something that, again, we've been involved with is the Carbon Disclosure Project, which um, is a wonderful project involving a number of global businesses. We've been named in the top 3% of those businesses who enable our customers to reduce their carbon footprint. So I mentioned earlier, carbon needs to be part of the conversation. It certainly is part of ours um, and in all our conversations with our customers. And that's something we want to help you know, manufacturers, producers and end users with because people are becoming more aware of their own carbon footprint too. So that um, transparency certainly becomes really relevant now. And is it cost effective for producers to use these solutions? Absolutely. And I think what we need to do is take the conversation away from individual pack unit cost. Although we can probably prove some kind of cost neutrality versus you know, incumbent and materials when you look at the yields of our films on reels and around that because we are achieving a higher pack output we need to look more um, holistically i suppose at the process and we look back up and down the chains we're taking lorries off the road with lighter material so per pack you know you're, you're reducing that amount of logistics treatment by x percent smaller pack size there are more pallets per lorries as well fewer lorries on road as i've mentioned and then when we're looking at post pack when it goes off to retail or the product goes wherever it ends up less crates being filled with the filled product ends up in the retail stores there's less crates there less cleaning of crates as well before they get sent back so you're reducing a whole lot of stuff just simply based on the fact you're using these materials and, and it's, it's a wonderful thing and i think again looking at that whole chain it's the most important thing to do because you'll see the savings jump out at you and as far as companies using it is it something that they can easily use on their existing equipment yeah so in terms of the bags so our kind of design for recycling presentation shrink bags and um, certainly can and they're very versatile materials we do have a lot of equipment in the market ourselves so aside from just making films we do offer many different forms of equipment so we have things like our vr and vs vacuum lines which again work with these specific bags but competitors do exist that these bags will be uh, appropriate for them as well and will run down their line so in terms of the design for recycling bag certainly a drop-in solution is available but again we'd always dedicate applications and engineering resource to ensure optimal performance in terms of the rbdf material there is some compatibility across flow wrap lines but we do have preferred partners for that again people that we've developed the film with and obviously the, the technology is suited for and designed for that material too. And you mentioned earlier about the recyclability of the product. Obviously, it's important in terms of how it fits into the circular economy. Definitely. So the circular economy in itself is massive. It's, it's a massive deal, I think, and, and something that will ultimately change the way the world thinks about how it approaches life in general. Um, instead of this linear economy of which we're part of now, you know, you know 
build, consume, throw away. The circular economy obviously serves to change that culture and tries to work out how we can reuse something, how we can not send something to landfill, which is the ultimate kind of not just death sentence for the product, but for, I think, the wider the wider human populace and, and, and animal populace too. It's something that's hugely damaging. So with the circular economy piece here at Sealed Air, it's something we're committed to. We've invested in a company called Plastic Energy, Spanish-based, but continue to expand. And what they can do, um, which has been really beneficial, particularly around our 30% recycled content products, what we've done is obviously support plastic energy in, in that endeavour. They will take back difficult to recycle plastics. And it's a project that we've publicised uh, working with Tesco's, particularly in the cheese sector. One of our original iterations of the RBDF material for some of the smaller 200, 250 gram chunks. Tesco collected some difficult to recycle material, a select few of their stores that got sent out to Plastic Energy and they were able to break down those products and essentially return it to constituent oils. That got sent to one of our resin suppliers called Sabic. So turn that into polyolefin resin. And then that got sent to us and we were able to create BDF with that recycled content. That was a big move in it. And obviously that then got cheese packed into it and, and ended up on shelf again. So that's true circularity that we've seen demonstrated. We want to obviously build on that and this is going to require a number of partners and also getting that resource back through these different alternative collections because we're obviously right now in terms of curbside and what the municipal waste streams look like that's currently not possible so recyclability is changing it's developing uh, new ideas not just mechanical but obviously chemical and advanced recycling methods are all here to kind of change the game and, and it's, it's amazing to see where this is going there are new companies and new ideas popping up all the time so we do design our materials, but number one, yes, it must be compatible with mechanical recycling, which is where the third party testing comes in and proves our case. But also with a view on the fact that true circularity does also require chemical recycling and, and that side of things, too. So that's our approach there. Is it important when you're developing products now? Is that like the first thing that you have to take into consideration is sustainability? Number one priority is sustainability and sustainability, as I've alluded to, is not just recyclability. It's, it's everything from the communities a business serves to its employees, to energy usage, to water consumption and everything that revolves around that business. All businesses have changed and are really focused on this now, which is which is wonderful to see. And we're here to try and support that. So. Yes, we will. We'd love every product to have recycled content and be recyclable. And certainly our pledge for 2025 requires us to have everything as recyclable or reusable by then. But there's more that can be done. Reduction, for example, and we can do that and we continue to innovate with new materials to reduce the amount of plastic going in. That not only works in terms of the challenges set by retail, but it works for us as well because we have increased yields. If we reduce the plastic weight by 20%, that's 20% extra material we can help someone else save and use for them too. So there are wonderful kind of economies of scale and sustainability goals achieved by adhering to that. So it's the first priority because it benefits everyone, including ourselves. And how often can we all say that?
We did talk about football, or soccer, quite a lot before the interview, I must admit. I do enjoy talking about sports, or music, or, well, pretty much anything, really. It takes me back to my old chemistry teacher when I was 16, who came up with a theory, obviously intended to be funny, that when people are born, they're given a number, and that number is the number of words that you will speak in your lifetime before you die. He said that I talked so much, whatever my word count was, I'd never make it to 20. Anyway, I digress as always, and so now it's time to go over to Ireland for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Butter futures market uh, this week was down around 50 to 75 euros along the curve as concerns regarding milk supply continued to dissipate. Skim milk powder was maybe up slightly, particularly further out the curve, but more or less continued to be flat in the immediate two quarters. Quarter two butter was down around 75 euros on the week to 40-40 level. Quarter three was off around 60 euros on the week to 4100 level. Quarter four was down around 60-65 euros to 41-25 sort of level. And then quarter one was off around 30 euros to 4,000. Quarter two skimmel powder was more or less flat at around 25-65 level. Same for quarter three, still trading around a 25, 80, 85 level. Quarter four was a bit stronger, breaking through the 2600 level to around 2605. And then quarter one uh, was also positive, up around 20 euros on the week to 2575. Whey continued to be relatively strong, trading around the 1015 level, 1020 level. Great, thanks Liam. We will catch up with you again next week. Stone X, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for Podcast 131 as April draws to a close. It's a holiday in the UK on Monday, but as it isn't in a lot of places, I'll still be publishing the newsletter. I only hope there's something to write about. Often when there's a holiday, the news dries up too, but I'll find something, I'm sure. And on that note, I hope that wherever you are, you have a great week ahead and that you stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.